listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. This episode covers the book of Acts, how Christians live. You can enjoy more messages like this with the free Courage Matters app, available in your app store. If you'd like to request Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event, click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. All right, today we're going to look at Acts chapter 24 and chapter 25. Acts 24 and 25, long passages of Scripture that have a lot of history in them. And that presents a challenge for anybody who's reading the Bible. Anytime you come across a passage of Scripture that seems heavy on history, you have to wrestle with, what does this mean for me today? And you have to try to maintain your attention on that passage so it doesn't drift. So what I'd like to do before we dive into chapter 24 and chapter 25 of the book of Acts, I'd like to give us a crash course, a master course, on how to read the Bible when you look at passages that don't seem to apply and don't seem to have much relevance for you today. And then we're going to use Acts 24 and 25 as the example. We're going to immediately put into practice what I'm going to teach you, what I'm going to show you. And if you do this, if you really pay attention over the next 30 to 50 minutes, over the next three or four hours, if you do that, want to make sure you're paying attention, okay? If you do that, if you pay attention to what I give you on the front end, you'll be able to appreciate the back end, and then when we're done together, you'll be able to take some things that you learn and be able to feed yourself. Because I could give you a fish today, and you'd eat, all right? I try to do that every time I'm communicating. I could do that, but if I teach you how to fish, and you become a really good fisher person, I'm being politically correct by saying fisher person, okay? Is everybody happy with that? You want me to say fisherman? Yes. You prefer that? If I teach you how to fish, then you'll be able to catch fish for yourself and feed yourself feast after feast in the Word of God. So, crash course, master course on how to read the Bible when it looks like, when it appears that there's not a whole lot there for me to take away. Number one, anytime and every time you approach the Bible, you should begin with prayer. You should pray and you should prepare yourself because to read the Bible is to spend time with the author of the Bible. Anytime you read a book, you're spending time with the author of that book, for better or worse. That's why you should choose your books wisely. When you read the Bible, you are choosing wisely because you're reading the creator's story. You're reading about the heart, the mind, the mission, the passion, the love, the mercy, the goodness, the holiness of God. I remember in my guitar playing days, when I really used to play guitar a lot, I remember reading an article by Leslie West, a famous guitarist, and he said, listen, here's what you do. If you want to learn the guitar style of a certain guitarist, you listen to their music before you go to bed. You put on headphones, and now we would use earbuds, and you listen to that guitar player's music before you go to bed, and you will not only learn how to get the bone tone of that guitar player. A lot of guitar players, their ability to sound good on guitar is not because of their amplifier or even the guitar they're playing through. It's actually in their fingers. That's why they call it bone tone, all right? So if you put Eddie Van Halen and you plugged him into a guitar amp that was just a real simple practice amp and a real simple guitar, it would still sound like Eddie Van Halen. My son and I are going to go to New York City next week and see Joe Satriani. How many of you know who Joe Satriani is? Shame on you. The all-time best-selling instrumental guitarist of all time, rock guitarist of all time. Unbelievable, and I would say this respectfully, but Eddie Van Halen could learn a few things from Joe Satriani. Now you have an idea of who Joe Satriani is, all right? If you plug this guitar into a little simple practice amp and he played, you would know it's Joe Satriani because there's something about bone tone. Well, when you listen to a musician at night before you go to bed, not only do you learn more about that artist's technique, but you actually begin to, it's an amazing thing, you actually begin to take on the personality of that musician. I tried it and I had to stop because some of the guys I was listening to, (laughs) I did not want to become like them, all right? But that's something that any good musician, if you're a musician for any length of time, you know that the more you listen to a particular musician, the more you will take on the personality traits and the instrumental nuances of that musician because you're actually, through the music, spending time with the musician. It's very similar when you read a book. By spending time with the author, 
through the vehicle of that book, you begin to take on the personality traits. You see where I'm going with this? How many of you know where I'm going with this? You begin to take on the personality traits, the characteristics, the character of the author. So when you approach the Bible that way and you pray and you prepare yourself and you understand that this is to spend time with God, not just a book written through the instrument of mere mortals, that it is a book unlike any other book. The Bible is unique among all other books because it has a divine author. When you pray and prepare yourself and approach the Bible that way, you can begin to open up your heart, your mind, your spirit, your whole being to actually being transformed. So number one, most important thing, pray and prepare yourself to meet with your maker. Number two, second helpful thing is invest in yourself. You should invest in yourself by picking up a few commentaries. Commentaries are not bad things, they're good things. You just need to make sure you have good commentaries. For example, for the book of Acts, two great commentaries, one of them is F.F. Bruce. He wrote a commentary, F.F. Bruce, called The Book of Acts from the New Testament International Commentary on the New Testament. So if you want to get a relatively short volume, a relatively small volume on the Book of Acts, that's a great resource to get. Secondly, if you want something that's about two and a half times as thick, a real thick thing, looks like what the yellow pages used to look like, you need to pick up Daryl L. Bach's commentary on the Book of Acts from the Baker Exegetical Commentary of the New Testament. Another great, great resource and if you have those two commentaries for the book of Acts, you'll be set. You'll learn a whole lot about the background, the history, the context in which the book of Acts was written. You'll learn academic information. And that's why it's dangerous to use a commentary. Well, why did you just tell me to use a commentary? Are you telling me to use a commentary? Are you telling me not to use a commentary? See, here's one of the things that's happening, a tremendous tragedy. By tremendous, I don't mean it's something that we should applaud and be excited about. We should grieve over it. Tremendous tragedy is happening all around the Western world, the well-educated world, where people in third world countries, second world countries, they wish that they could come to the United States and go to a Bible college, go to a seminary, and learn the things that those of us who have gone to Bible college and seminary learned and can learn. But what they have is something that we could use, which is a passion and a fire for God. And what we have is something that they could use, which is some knowledge and academics. But here's one of the tremendous tragedies that's happening all around the Western world, the developed world, where churches have been planted and grown up and grown in size and numbers and all that stuff. What's happened is you have pastors and Bible teachers who are standing up and simply regurgitating what they read about in commentaries. And all they're doing is stimulating gray matter. They're giving you facts. They're giving you data or data, depending on what part of the country you come and you say data or data. How many people say data? How many people say data? Split. There you go. Those of you who are listening, it's a split decision. So you choose how you want to say it, but it's the same thing. If you just get your knowledge of God from reading what other people have studied about him, why don't you want to just go right to the source? And you need to be very careful that you don't simply approach Bible study and Bible meditation as if it were an academic exercise. I'm not poo-pooing commentaries. I just gave you two that would be great to have in your library. What I'm saying is that if you use commentaries as the primary source of your information about reading the Bible, you could be well on your way to becoming a Pharisee and you would be unintentional about it all along. Now listen, I wrote a book, it's coming out March 13th, entitled, A Call for Courage, Living with Power, Truth, and Love in an Age of Intolerance and Fear. Well, how dare you bring up your book? Listen, the reason why I wrote a book is not because I wanted to become an author, but because I had you in mind. I wrote the book for you. I wrote the book for you to change and transform your life. Imagine that. I wrote a book that I wanted people to read. Why would I want to apologize for that? Why in the world would I apologize for writing a book that needed to be written, that you need to read, especially at this particular time in history? I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to back down. In the appendix of that book, there is a section. The appendix is titled, 10 Signs You Might Be Morphing Into a Pharisee. There were 6,000 Pharisees in Jesus' day, and not one of them was chosen to be among the 12 apostles. Only one Pharisee became an apostle, as one abnormally born, the apostle Paul. 
Only one of them. So if there were 6,000 of them during Jesus' day and Jesus chose fishermen and other guys who were not academians to become the apostles through whom he would change the world, there's a lesson in that for you and for me. Your academics are important in Bible study. It is important to become well-educated in your knowledge of the Bible. However, if your Bible study only stimulates your head and not your heart, you will become a Pharisee. And it's a tremendous tragedy that's happening all around the nation. It happens in Sunday schools. It happens in church programs. It happens in small groups. It happens all over the place where people think that an academic study of Scripture is what it's all about. Listen, if you think that's what it's about, ask your friendly neighborhood Pharisee. You thought I was going to say Spider-Man, didn't you? Ask your friendly neighborhood Pharisee about his knowledge of the Bible and they will blow you away. They will mesmerize you, but they missed God by 18 inches, the distance between their heads and their hearts. So pick up commentaries, study commentaries, but be careful of the ridiculous tragedy that's happening all around the nation. People are confusing education with application and transformation. You need to study the Bible. This is point number three. On your way to studying and understanding the Bible, when you come across a passage that seems to just be reiterating a lot of historical data, a lot of information, and you're trying to figure out, what does this mean for me? The third thing is that you need to approach the Bible with a bent toward applying what you read, application, and transformation. Remember, it's not what you know about the Bible that will change your life. It's what you apply in the Bible that will change your life. And Pharisees were great at knowing what the Word of God said. In fact, they went so far, Jesus rebuked them by saying, you diligently study the Scriptures thinking that by them you possess eternal life. Wow. The author of life rebuking those who were studying the Word that he wrote and they were missing God all along the way. So your study of the scriptures, your study of the Bible needs to be with a deliberate, intentional idea of how can I apply what I'm reading? This needs to transform me. Remember, the more you spend time in the Bible, the more you're spending time with the author of the Bible, the more you spend time with the author of the Bible, the more you become like the author of the Bible in character, in Christ-likeness, all right? So you need to make sure that you don't approach Bible study, which you should study the Bible, or Bible meditation, and you should meditate on the Bible. Christian meditation is different than Eastern meditation because we have a source of the meditation, and it's not om, it's not reciting a mantra, it's not transcendental meditation, it's not what it is. It is focusing on the Word of God, saturating yourself in the Word of God. That is the focus of your attention and asking God to transform you through His Word, all right? Number four, the fourth thing that you need to do is you need to approach all Bible reading with a bent on looking for the tiles in the mosaic, all right? A mosaic is a picture that's comprised of the equivalent, you could say, is pixels. You could look at a mosaic in a similar way to looking at a computer monitor. If you get right up in the monitor, you can see. I don't recommend that you do this, all right, unless you wear sunglasses, all right? If you get right up into the monitor, you can see that there are all these thousands and thousands, if not millions, of little pixels that if you get way up in it, you can see how a simple letter in the alphabet, if you use Microsoft Word, how you can see a simple letter in the alphabet is made up of pixels, all right? Well, in the same way, if you go to an art museum and you're looking at a mosaic and you're right there, six inches away from the mosaic, first of all, the museum curator is going to come along if he finds out about you, and they're going to say, hey, knucklehead, don't you know how to look at a mosaic? You don't get all up into the mosaic. You can't appreciate it. Stand back and look at the beauty of it. Well, conversely, in order to appreciate the beauty of a mosaic, the big picture, you do need to look at the particular tiles. You do need to take some time understanding and appreciating what are the tiles that make this thing so beautiful when you take a step back. So the fourth thing you need to do is you need to, when you're reading the Bible, you need to look for the tiles that comprise the mosaic. Look for the things that are there that 
will make the big picture make sense. Because if you just read and zip through Acts chapter 24, Acts chapter 25, as we're going to do that in just a moment, or other passages of scripture that just seem to be recording history and facts and data and information, and you're not looking for the tiles within all of that stuff that's laid out, you're gonna miss some nuggets. You're gonna miss a nugget or two that is there on purpose. Remember, every word of the Bible is there on purpose. We believe in plenary verbal inspiration. We don't believe that the Bible contains the word of God or that it simply reflects the heart of God at a 50,000 foot big picture level. We believe that every word is there on purpose and every passage is there on purpose. So if every word is there on purpose and every passage is there on purpose, then you need to be able to look at that mosaic of a chapter or the mosaic of a book and you need to look for the particular tiles. Otherwise, you'll miss things that are there on purpose, all right? So make sure you're looking for the tiles in the midst of trying to understand the mosaic, the big picture of what the Bible is about. Fifth, the fifth thing that you need to do is you need to be able to ask, what is this saying? Is that so? So what? Is that so? So what? In other words, this is really driven home here. This is actually laid out here in the Bible for a purpose. Why is it there? Why did God, in his wisdom, decide to put this into the record of Scripture? Is that so? Well, so what? And that brings you back to the whole idea of application, right? Is that so? So what? Is that so? So what? You need to ask continually as you're reading the Bible, as you're asking the Lord, Lord, is that so? And the Lord will tell you, he'll confirm his word. Yeah, it's so. It's right there in black and white. I put it there. Well, so what? What does that mean? You see the difference between just shoving stuff into your mind and just trying to absorb data and just going through Bible memorization. You know, if your memorization of scripture and your scripture reading has become boring and a rote exercise, it's because you lost some of your mojo and how to ask the questions and how to approach your Bible studying and your Bible reading, okay? The next thing I want you to look at, number six, look for the timeless principles that will change your life. Look for the timeless principles that will change your life. Very important to understand a principled approach to Bible study, Bible reading, and Bible meditation. There are certain things that were limited for a limited time, a limited circumstance. For example, if you try to go take an ax and make it float in water, as you read in the Old Testament happened one time, if you try to do that, you're going to be hard-pressed and you probably need to come in and make an appointment So I'd like to meet with you and talk with you a little bit, okay? There are certain things that are for a limited time, limited circumstance, one-offs in the Bible, but there are other things that are intended to be principles, timeless principles for all people everywhere. And that's one of the things you need to have when you approach the Bible, a principled approach to reading, studying, meditating on the Bible. Look for the timeless principle that applies to you that you could sit down and you could talk about with your child, your children, your teenagers, with your spouse, with a neighbor, with a coworker. Look for the principles that are cross-generational, applicable to all races and all people and all sexes all over the world and you'll be able to walk away with some great takeaways, all right? Number seven, you need to thank God. It's so easy to forget that important thing of thanking God for what he just showed you. It's important to thank God. Lord, thank you for what you just showed me. Thank you for this time that I've had with you. Thank you for speaking to me through your word. Remember, to build your faith, lift your Bible. You can have a personal word from God anytime you want, anytime you pick up the Bible and read it, all right? So people who are looking for a prophetic word actually can get into the very pathetic when it comes to how you're living. If you're looking for a prophetic, extra biblical word and you're not really immersed in the word of God as a dedicated student of the word of God, looking for ways to apply it, looking for the principles, asking, is that so? So what? Right? Looking for the transformational aspects. If you're not doing that, then you're missing out on the word from the Lord that you can have any and every time you crack open the Bible. You can have as many words from God as you're willing to tolerate. Anytime you want to, 
open your Bible. To build your faith, lift your Bible. You want a word from God, he's given you a love letter, he's given you 66 of them, compiled into one complete book called the Bible. And you can read that, and you can hear from God any and every time you want to. And I highly recommend that you do that. And finally, after you thank the Lord, you can say, I'm being very Western here, I'm being very linear. First do this, then do this, then do this, then do that. But even all through, we've already talked about it, look for the principle, look for the application. But at the very end, you want to immediately apply what you read. Immediately apply what God spoke to you about. Be careful that you don't wait for a round to it, right? I'm just going to get around to it. Look for one on eBay. See if you can get around to it. Look for one on Amazon, around to it. If you're an Amazon Prime member, you get free shipping, okay? Free next day shipping. Pick up around to it. No, you don't want to pick up around to it attitude when it comes to Bible reading. You want to immediately put into action what you read in the Bible. And when and if you do that, your personal revival, your personal spiritual awakening will be underway. I'd like to close in prayer right now, but we're just getting our feet wet. You've got enough information right there to revolutionize your Bible reading. Is anybody happy about what I just shared? Is anybody thankful for what I just shared? There you go. So now what we're going to do is we're going to look at Acts chapter 24 and chapter 25, and you're saying to yourself, oh my goodness, how in the world are we going to go through two chapters of the book of Acts in our remaining time together? Will you just hold on to your seat? I'm going to show you right now how we're going to do it. And this is the example of how when you come across a long passage of scripture that seems to simply be recording facts, data, information, and history, you can walk away with some great takeaways that apply for you in the 21st century, even though they took place in the first century. And in this whole process, what am I doing? I'm not just giving you a fish. I'm teaching you how to fish for yourself. So you know how to feast on God's word wherever you are for the rest of your life, just with those very simple, but don't confuse simple with being insignificant, just with those simple eight things that I gave you, that master class, that crash course on how to read the Bible and squeeze the most out of it. Acts chapter 24, beginning in verse 1. And after five days, the apostle Paul is being persecuted here, and now he is in the hands of the Romans waiting for a trial. After five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesperson, one Tertullus. And they laid before the governor their case against Paul. The spokesman, or some of your translations say, an attorney. So, if you're reading a translation that says an attorney, my apologies to you if you are an attorney. But you know already that should make you uncomfortable because a lawyer is involved, right? When he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, this is Paul's trial here, since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. Feels like this guy is in it up to his waist, doesn't he? He sounds like a real polished, perhaps greasy attorney. By the way, not all attorneys are bad. There are many great attorneys. Just want to be clear about that so nobody says, you said attorneys were bad. This particular guy seems to be full of himself and a purveyor. He has mastered the ability to blow smoke up somebody's nose, okay? Since through you we enjoy much peace and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, the Jewish people, in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. <laughs> You are full of what you have stepped in here because there's nothing that the Jews would like more than to get this Roman monkey off their backs. They did not like the Romans over them and in their charge. So this guy is blowing smoke up the leader's noses. Like if you want a textbook case of it, here it is. You want me to do that again? <laughs> he is not being fully truthful here. He is buttering up this guy. I'll leave it at that. In every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude, you liar. But to detain you no further, because your time is so important and I recognize it and I'm such a brown noser, but to detain you no further, 
I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly, for we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazareans. Where was Jesus from? His hometown, Nazareth. So that's why this is the only time that it's used here in the book of Acts. The Christians were also called the Nazareans because their chief leader was Jesus of Nazareth, okay? He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. So this is a big lie. You're exaggerating this whole issue and they're lying, all right? Remember, making an accusation doesn't prove an accusation. Making an accusation doesn't prove an accusation. And in this day and age in which we're living, it's very easy for people to make charges against Christians today and to say things about Christians today without proving them to be true. Well, you hater, you hater. Does calling somebody a hater prove that you've made the case that that person indeed hates? Listen, if a Christian is a hater because we are adhering to the Bible, that there is the way, the truth, and the life, and his name is Jesus, and that the Bible means what it says and says what it means, and that there's no way, there's no other way to get to the Father except through Jesus. If by quoting Jesus, we are called haters, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but through me, then so be it. No problem with that. If you want to call me a hater, people want to call you a hater for quoting the teachings of Jesus, their problem, guess what? It's not with you. Take it to Jesus. Your problem is with Jesus. So if you think I'm a hater, then you think Jesus is a hater. You have to by your logic, but your logic is actually illogical. It's inconsistent because very few people are willing to call Jesus a hater. So there you go. I just gave you something else that you can stand on to help you lovingly stand up and speak out and not allow yourself to be intimidated in this world in which we live where reverse intolerance has become the norm. Everybody wants to talk about tolerance these days. Unless you're a Christian and you believe the Bible, then we don't want to hear from you. Well, you need to understand that the word of Jesus is still true. And the claims of the Bible are exclusive. They are exclusive. And if you don't want to embrace the exclusive claims of the Bible, you can never follow Jesus. Jesus made many exclusive claims that put him in a completely unique camp from all the other religious leaders that ever lived, all the other writers and authors and speakers. He was God in the flesh, and he is still and will always and forever be God Almighty, always was, always will be. And so you just have to understand there are exclusive teachings that Jesus gave, exclusive teachings in the Bible, and you don't need to apologize for them. Listen, if God wanted to apologize for them, he would have apologized for them himself. But he made exclusive comments that are still applicable today. So embrace the exclusive teachings of Jesus. Don't look down your nose at other people thinking you're better than them because you're not. None of us are. At the same time, don't apologize for the clear black and white exclusive teachings of Jesus that make it very clear he's not equal or even remotely similar to any of the other religious leaders that ever walked the face of the earth, live on the earth right now, or will ever walk the face of the earth. All right? Verse 8. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. So he drops back and he punts because he doesn't have any evidence. It's a weak case. You don't have any evidence. So they're hoping for a monkey trial here. This is the original monkey trial. Forget about the Scopes trial here. They're hoping for uh, persuasion to happen here with his greasing up the leader who's hearing this whole thing. They're hoping that they're going to persuade him without real hard facts and evidence, all right? Verse nine, the Jews also joined in the charge affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. How's this for a tile in the mosaic? How's this for a guy who's facing an inappropriate trial for being innocent, he's being accused, and he's cheerful, he's happy. This is the same guy, by the way, who would go on to write the book of Philippians while he was in prison. The book of Philippians is a joy manual, and he wrote it while he was in prison. Wow. 
How's this for whatever circumstance you're walking through in your life? Is that so? So what? How's this for what's the principle that I can take away? I can actually, when I'm filled with the Holy Spirit, led by the Holy Spirit, remember Paul is the chief character who's the example of that throughout the book of Acts. There are others who are examples of that. But how is this a takeaway for you in the midst of whatever circumstance you're facing? This guy is cheerfully going to make his case when he knows Listen, they've already beaten him up very badly. He already just narrowly escaped being flogged. And if this goes south, if this trial goes south and he is accused, this guy could lose his head after being beaten to a pulp. So it's amazing. It's a great takeaway for you and for me in this long account of maintaining cheerfulness in the midst of persecution and hardship. You can maintain cheerfulness. And Paul is a great example of what it looks like to live a spirit-filled, spirit-led life. I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. Verse 12. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. So Paul is doing the exact opposite of what the Jews said he was going to do. Well, if you just listen to his testimony, you'll see he's guilty. And actually, Paul is actually presenting a pretty good case for himself because there's no evidence. Verse 13, neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me, but this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, sect of Judaism, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. You read Revelation chapter 20, for example, helps you understand that this idea of the resurrection of the dead is a very clear teaching of the Bible. And here it's presented in the book of Acts. So there's a tile for you. There's a takeaway. God is going to resurrect the just and the unjust. We've talked about this before, the whole idea of the judgment seat of Christ and the great white throne judgment that we read about in the book of Revelation in chapter 20. So God is going to resurrect All people and all people will indeed be judged. Remember that the next time somebody chimes out to you, well, Jesus didn't judge. Not only did Jesus judge, not only is the entire Bible a book about judgments, but Jesus is going to judge. And his judgments will be just and true. How's that for a little bit more exclusivity? How's that for a little bit more of standing up, speaking out in today's sit down, shut up world? Jesus did judge. The Bible does judge. And Jesus most definitely will judge everybody. It's right here in the Bible. You need to begin in your own life by letting the word of God judge you so that you can change and adjust your life. Be very careful in your Bible study, your Bible reading, that you don't read the Bible with a bent toward, why well, I need to tell somebody about that. Well, somebody else needs to read this passage. Boy, I'm gonna, we can become passive aggressive in our use of scripture, hoping that somebody reads between the lines and understands, here's a passage you really need to read. Boy, don't leave notes for your wife on the table, man, before you go to work. Wow. Look at this passage of scripture from the book of Proverbs chapter 31. If you don't know what Proverbs 31 says, that's a good thing for you to look at. Don't leave verses around the house trying to hope that somebody picks up on it. The first place to begin when you're reading the Bible is to let what you read judge you. The word of God is living and active. It penetrates so deeply, so deeply. You read that in the book of Hebrews that it penetrates thoughts and motives right down to the core of who you are. When you read the Bible, the first place is to let it judge you, your motives, your attitudes, your thinking, and then adjust your life accordingly, all right? So he talks about the resurrection of the just and the unjust. You put that in your back pocket. There is coming a day of judgment and I need to live justly. Verse 16, so I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia 
They ought to be here before you and to make an accusation should they have anything against me. See, he's the people who are supposed to be there to make the case for the prosecution, they're not there. Why? Because they wouldn't have had any evidence. They would have just been making statements without supporting those statements. And anybody knows, any attorney worth their salt knows that making a charge doesn't prove the charge. And Paul's making his just defense here. Verse 20, or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. Here's another nugget for you. Look at how faithful Paul is. He's not compromising the proclamation of the gospel, even though he risks, he risks inciting those who could take his life by bringing up the gospel. The gospel by nature is offensive to those who don't want to hear it. And all of us in the church and the body of Christ around the nation need to get over it. We drank the Kool-Aid and were afraid of telling people the truth about Jesus. It's called compromise. It's called wimpy spirituality. The world needs to hear the same truths about Jesus, even though the world is trying to put pressure on us. Listen, Paul knew what it was to be under the gun, to receive pressure, to be pressured. And yet he is an example of a spirit-filled, spirit-led life, a man who's not compromising the truth of God. He brings it up right here in a court and says, listen, the only thing that I said out loud was this, this truth about the resurrection, in particular, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Great example for you and for me. There is no circumstance, listen, there is no circumstance that you are now in or will ever be in where you need to sit down and shut up when it comes to the truth of the gospel. Even if you're facing personal risk and persecution, Every situation that God puts you in is an opportunity to preach the gospel. Paul is an example of faithful obedience to the calling of God. And there's a takeaway for you. No matter what happens, you can be faithful. You will be faithful when Jesus is at the forefront and you're filled with the Holy Spirit at the epicenter of who you are. You will be faithful in every opportunity that God gives you to proclaim the truth. Verse 22, but Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, he was familiar with the Christians, put them off saying, when Lysias, the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, guess what would have happened as a result of that? Paul's friends are coming in attending to him and they're praying for Paul. And this is the beginning of God using Paul in a counterintuitive way to be faithful to what he said he would do with Paul in the first place. Acts chapter 9, verse 16, this man is my chosen instrument. I'm going to show him how much he must suffer as I send him to preach the gospel. It's an amazing unfolding that we're seeing here. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, we see you'll be my witnesses, Jesus said, in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. We're seeing that fulfilled here. Is that so? So what? I'll tell you why it's such a big deal. Because if you've been reading the book of Acts this whole time, if you've been in a Bible study this whole time, if you've been meditating on the word of God and you've been paying attention and you've been looking for points of application and transformation, you will know that Acts chapter one is the laying out the map of everything that you're going to read in the book of Acts. And so what we're seeing is the fulfillment of what was promised in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, key verse of Scripture for the whole book of Acts. It just doesn't happen the way most of us probably would have thought it would have happened. Amazing. So they would have been coming to see Paul and then going out. They're praying for him. The word of Paul's imprisonment is going out. And the people are learning to get their spiritual legs. They're learning how to pray. They're learning how to intercede. They're learning how 
God can move. Now, keep in mind, we've already read about people being let out of prison in the book of Acts. Why isn't Paul being released from prison in this circumstance? You should be able to ask that question as you're looking at this. Is this so? So what? Why isn't God releasing Paul from prison in a miraculous way, the way we read about earlier in the book of Acts? Because God has a purpose that's often above our ways. Look with me at the book of Isaiah. If we look at Isaiah chapter 55, verse eight and nine, a principle here that's being laid out. Remember I said, study the Bible looking for principles. And here it is in black and white in Isaiah 55, verses eight and nine. But you're seeing this principle manifest through the life of the apostle Paul. And it's just as relevant and pertinent today in the 21st century as it was then. And Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Too much time is spent by us as Christians trying to get out of a circumstance that God actually allowed and sometimes wants for the betterment of our character and the advancement of the gospel. You don't know, we don't know this side of eternity, living outside of Eden, the thoughts, the mind, the agenda of Almighty God. But when God says he's going to do something, God will do what he says. He'll just do it the way that he knows he wants to do it. And oftentimes we don't understand why God's doing it this way. Why won't God get me out of this job? Why was God putting me around these particular people who are driving me nuts? God, deliver me, deliver me, deliver me. Well, maybe your perspective needs to be the perspective of the Apostle Paul, who cheerfully gave his defense, who was very familiar with the supernatural power of God to deliver people, as we have read earlier, as recorded in the book of Acts. But here, his contentedness, his satisfaction here seems to be very clear. He simply wants to preach the gospel. He is so enamored with Jesus, so convinced in the power of the gospel, for the Jew first and also the Gentile, so committed to his God that something had happened in his life. He had crossed over. He's no longer concerned about his circumstances. He is now consumed and concerned about the advancement of the kingdom agenda of his Jesus. And no persecution, no difficulty, no obstacle becomes so important that it will overshadow the calling that God put on his life. What a lesson that is for us today. How easy it is for us to get sidetracked and derailed and to focus and to fixate on our circumstances instead of the opportunities and the calling of God that he has given to us in the midst of our circumstances. Listen, these guys are hearing the gospel. Felix is hearing the gospel. Festus, hearing the gospel, you're going to see as Festus takes over here, and eventually all of Rome hears the gospel. Why is that significant? You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That would be Rome. Great example of spirit-filled, spirit-led living the apostle Paul is that's timeless for each and every one of us. Verse 24, after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. As he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, we get a sense of the content of what Paul was preaching about. Righteousness, it does matter. Self-control does matter. The coming judgment, the day of reckoning does matter. It's reality. Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I'll summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus and desiring to do the Jews a favor he released Paul. No. That is the reversed standard version. Do not read that version. Do not put words in God's mouth. It does not resolve the way we would think it would resolve. Look what happens here. Desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Ouch! 
After two years, God, I've got a mission to do. You called me. You knocked me on my bum on my way to Damascus, and you called me and you commissioned. I heard your voice. I saw you. Paul says later on, I saw inexpressible things, things that a man is not allowed to tell people. And here I am in prison. How in the world am I going to plant churches? How in the world is this gospel going to go forward if I am left in prison? Certainly the most intuitive thing, God, the most wise thing would be to get me out of these chains. You know that I've been faithful. You know that I want to preach the gospel. You know that I'm filled with the Holy Spirit, led by the Holy Spirit. You know that I know how to preach a message. You know that I've been trained as a Pharisee in the Old Testament. You know, you know, you know, you know, you know. So why am I in prison? Get me out of the prison. I want out. Get me out. And God has him there on purpose because God's plan and his purpose on the way of preaching the gospel to the Roman world, to the uttermost parts of the world, God is committed to the character of the messenger, Paul. And maybe Paul needed to learn a thing or two about humility. After all, being a murderer and a blasphemer, and the violent man that he was, maybe he needed to spend a lot of time, FaceTime. Don't pull out your iPhone. FaceTime with his Savior that he wanted to tell the whole world about. So much of our time is spent asking God, change my circumstance. When all along, God is saying, I want to change you, regardless of the circumstance. When God makes a promise, he means what he says, says what he means, delivers what he promises. It just often isn't the way that we think it's going to happen. Let God be true and every man a liar. Let God be true. Let every man be a liar. His will, his plan, and his purpose will prevail. Three days after Festus had arrived in the province, verse 1 of chapter 25, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. The chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. See, they're not letting up. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me. And if there's anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day, he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. He maintains his innocence. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? Guess what awaits Paul if he goes to Jerusalem? They want to kill him. But Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews, I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. He's got nothing to lose. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, to Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. We're seeing God now orchestrate the fulfillment of Acts 1, verse 8, that the gospel will indeed go to the uttermost parts of the world, just not the way many of us would have anticipated it would happen. And as we finish up, verse 13, now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king 
saying, this is a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against them. I answered them that this was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in this case of such evil as I suppose, rather they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion, meaning the Romans recognized he didn't do anything that's worthy of being punished, about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. The gospel was being preached. And now guess who's hearing the gospel? The king. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp. Can you hear the music? And they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then, at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. What an audience for the gospel because of persecution. God even loves these people. Jesus died for the sins of rich people and poor people and even corrupt people. And if you don't get it by now, you were a corrupt person and you would be a corrupt person were it not for the intervention of God in your life. We're all in the same boat, rowing in the same direction, and it's away from God until God reaches out, turns the boat around, and points us to Jesus. Verse 24, Festus said, King Agrippa, and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem are here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. And so that's where we end today as we continue the next time together with the next chapter in the book of Acts. And I hope that you understand a few things now about when you're reading a book that could otherwise seem like this is just history and data and facts and just things laying out that I'm starting to fall asleep and lose my attention. Now you know that there are tiles, there are nuggets, there are principles, there are points of application all through just about any passage of scripture. If you read it in the beginning, and you read it at the end, if you put it in its context, every passage of scripture has a purpose and a usefulness that will benefit your life. You've been listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. If you enjoyed this message, you'll love Michael Anthony's Courage Matters Podcast, where he focuses on leadership, relationships, and world events. You can also invite Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event. To learn more, visit CourageMatters.com or download the free Courage Matters app. In the meantime, keep looking up. There's no place else worth looking.